Hi everyone, my name is Derek, and I'm the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast. The conquests of Alexander the Great and his successors saw the dominance of Greek culture across much of Eurasia for over 300 years, and is one of the most exciting periods in all of history. Our journey will cover topics such as the daily life of Greeks and Egyptians living under Cleopatra and the Ptolemies, and the relationship of Buddhism and Hellenism in the Greek kingdoms of India. Check out the podcast through my website or on any podcast platform by searching Hellenistic Age Podcast, and I hope to see you soon. The ancient Greek writer and historian Herodotus, often referred to as the father of history, once wrote in his seminal work The Histories, written around 440 BCE, that if the Greeks had ever united amongst themselves, that it would have been difficult for the whole world to resist them. And while this is a rather ambitious claim, it does hold at least some water, evidenced by the Greek coalition that managed to resist and push back against the invasions and considerably larger armies of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, pushing them out of Greece and all the way out of Europe by 479 BCE. Celebrating this monumental achievement together for a brief instance, before shortly afterwards plunging themselves into war with one another once again, fighting for dominance in Greece. Warfare between the city-states being way more frequent than I originally realized. What created this ongoing bitter angst against one another when there were obvious external foes, and thus opportunities for expansion beyond the Greek peninsula? Much of this has to do with the innately adversarial political structure of ancient Greece, the polis system, referring to the isolated city-states that organically developed between the 11th to 8th centuries BCE, and largely as a result of the geography of Greece. A terrain divided by the Pindus mountain chain that begins where modern southern Albania meets northern Greece, and that extends southwards through the length of Greece into the sea, which also helps to explain the many islands that dot the Aegean. On the Greek mainland, creating small pockets of arable land that became populated, serving as the starting point for small city-states to grow, but remained separated by the many mountains traversing the peninsula, thereby keeping these city-states quite isolated from one another. And due to the limited availability of arable land, this led to fierce competition among the cities, and ultimately, conflict, fighting for the meager resources that their lands were capable of generating. In fact, the people of this time didn't refer to their country as Greece, but rather linked their identity to the respective city-state from where they hailed, which is where their loyalty lay. Each polis, which can also be thought of as a micro-state, despite its people sharing a common ancestry, language, religious beliefs, and sometimes trading with one another, distinctly possessing their own customs and way of life. and. In the effort of gaining resource advantages over competitors, in addition to war, at times resorting to alliances with other city-states, only to abandon these allies when advantageous and turn on them in the pursuit of more benefits and influence, evolving into a culture of Greek states forming, shifting, and breaking alliances with head-spinning frequency. 
the nations of ancient Greece only truly uniting their strength when absolutely necessary, in the face of a dire threat, such as the aforementioned invasions of the Achaemenids, but then quickly falling into dispute once the larger external threat had been dealt with. However, as we'll learn in this episode, while much of Greece did indeed unite in 338 BC under Athenian and Theban leadership to put a firm stop to the rise of Macedon, Although originally dismissed as an inconsequential barbarian kingdom, led by an inconsequential barbarian leader, in Philip, they were facing an adversary of true rarity, a military and diplomatic genius who transformed Macedon in a terrifyingly quick and sudden fashion into the superpower of its time. This happening while most of Greece remained preoccupied with their traditional neighboring adversaries, only recognizing Macedon as the dire threat that it was too late in the game. In an ironic twist of fate, however, this turning point in history, the Macedonian hegemony of Greece, allowed Herodotus's claim to come true in a sense, being that Philip's domination, and therefore unification of Greece, served as the foundation that allowed his son, Alexander the Great, to lead a Panhellenic campaign that would come to dominate much of the known world as they knew it. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 18, Part 7, and the conclusion of the series delving into the astounding lifetime, exploits, and achievements of King Philip II of Macedon. Before we kick this episode off, there's just a little housekeeping that I wanted to bring up regarding the launch of the Warlords of History Patreon page. In the event that you're interested in supporting my work directly, the link for which I'll include in the show notes and that can also be accessed through the support page on the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com. Of course, no pressure to do so, but it would certainly be appreciated to help me keep all of this going. As mentioned, this episode forms the finale of a seven-part series, meaning that before getting into this installment, you might first want to have a listen to episodes 12 through 17 in order to make better sense of the complete storyline, now approaching the climactic events and twilight of Philip's career that we'll be covering here. That began when the 23-year-old Philip rose to power in 359 BCE, to lead the kingdom of Macedon out of a particularly dark moment in its tumultuous history. In fact, a deeply embattled history that had marked the Macedonian kingdom long before Philip entered into the equation, that from its very founding in 808 BCE had seen pockets of growth and expansion, but then fell into a downward spiral of stagnation into the late 6th century BCE steadily being chewed up both internally and externally, struggling under national disunity and factionalism, made worse by a court culture that had devolved into a viper's nest of plotting, squabbling, and murder. While foreign heavyweights, including the Achaemenid Persian Empire, Athens, Sparta, and Thebes, and Macedon's more immediate Balkan neighbors meddled in its affairs, sometimes playing kingmaker to whoever sat in the Macedonian throne, while also threatening to topple Macedon entirely through military force. This 
in essence, was the state of the realm when Philip took the reins, barely able to defend itself and with an economy in ruins. But what nobody could have anticipated, in Macedonia or anywhere else for that matter, was that with his ascension in 359, the rise of Macedon had begun. Philip weaving diplomatic magic to hold off the impending foreign waves of disaster, using this precious time to reinvent the Macedonian military, instituting numerous innovations from equipment to the tactical, along with a tremendously rigorous training regiment to transform the Macedonian army into the finest fighting force that the Greek world had ever seen. Taking on and challenging a growing list of opponents, none more notable than the Athenians, that although daunting, never seemed to dismay the Macedonian king, who somehow always landed upon the right strategies to combat whoever stood in the way of his kingdom's rise, initially reclaiming all of Macedon's domains, then reaching for more in an almost constant cadence of campaigning, expanding the land, power, and influence of what was evolving into a Macedonian empire. Which brings us to what we covered in the last episode, with Philip, fresh off the crushing Macedonian victory over the Phocians at the Battle of Crocus Field in 352 BCE, prevented from moving to central Greece, finding an Athenian-led collection of Greek troops blocking their passage southwards at Thermopylae, where Philip, instead of pressing the issue there, satisfied himself with consolidating his hold on Thessaly in northern Greece, before leading the bulk of his forces back north into Macedon and then eastwards to come to the aid of the Greek cities of Perinthus and Byzantium that were being threatened by the Adrigian king in Thrace, Cursobleptes. The Macedonian king spending the next couple of years campaigning both there and to the southwest of Macedon's domains, in Epirus and Thessaly, asserting dominance over friend and foe alike. This imposed hierarchy along with Macedon's sharp rise in power and increasingly aggressive behavior, churning the stomachs of the powerful Chalcidian League, and triggering them to flip their allegiance to the Athenians, and attempt a daring invasion of Macedon while Philip was abroad in Thessaly. Philip, in turn, using a clever diversion to draw the Athenians out of that theater and fall heavily upon the isolated Chalcidians, launching a frightening counterattack, systematically dismantling their league and eviscerating the city of Olynthus, before absorbing all of the Chalcides as the newest addition to the kingdom of Macedon, that was now widely recognized as a major power in Greece. A status that was soon galvanized in 346 BCE through masterful deception and sheer diplomatic brilliance, with Philip receiving prominent delegations from all over Greece, including its former hegemons, Sparta, Athens, and Thebes, who were looking to him to broker an end to the Third Sacred War. The Macedonian king, on the surface, entertaining each of their conflicting and self-interested goals, but in reality, twisting and bending their wants and desires to serve his own ambitions. Raising a smokescreen through a series of backroom deals that, upon thinning out, revealed Macedonian troops now in control of Thermopylae, which was a key catalyst for securing an uneasy peace agreement with Athens, along with facilitating an end to the Third Sacred War, 
with Mastodon supplanting Thebes as the leader of the Amphictyonic League, and Philip assuming a leadership role in Greek affairs. All of this unfolding in a mere 13 years since Philip had claimed the Macedonian throne. But with the most scary prospect of all being, Central Greece now wide open to the Macedonian king. Bringing us to where we last left things off in episode 17, late 346 BCE, with Philip leading the bulk of his army, around 20,000 troops back north into Macedon, after having left garrisons behind at the principal Phocian city of Aletheia and the Pass of Thermopylae, ensuring that his forces would be free to travel into central Greece when necessary where almost everyone was quite relieved with the Third Sacred War finally being brought to an end, regardless of how this came to fruition, with perhaps the exception of the Athenians, that in response to Philip's quick stepping pace and clever maneuvering, were caught completely by surprise and utterly outplayed, left with little choice but to accept a humiliating peace agreement with Macedon. And while Philip was under no illusions that this settlement would turn into an amicable long-term arrangement, he was content to let the dust settle for now in Greece, especially since he had just won huge accolades for ending the protracted and drawn-out Third Sacred War, and didn't want to tarnish his image as a defender of the gods and a leading authority in Greece. Careful to avoid being seen as the conquering tyrant that the Athenians had claimed, and were still claiming him to be. Being that, despite the end of the war, the situation was still tense in Greece, with Philip having disrupted the traditional world order, a sentiment that could very easily cascade into greater alarm among the fickle nations of classical Greece, and a massive coalition surfacing, undoing the recent gains he had made. Plus, there was a more practical reason for marching off. A new and boldly aggressive foe that had emerged some 450 kilometers away on Macedon's western and northwestern flank that were raiding with increased intensity and deeper into Macedonian lands that his available garrisons were unable to hold back, thus requiring Philip's direct attention. A tribal king by the name of Pluritus, who had established a powerful kingdom in southern Illyria near the Adriatic coast, in what today would be central Albania, and under whom a number of Illyrian tribes had rallied behind, and in the spirit of the warlike tribal kings before him, had sparked an upsurge of raids into western Macedon, looking to take advantage of the fact that Philip was far away occupied in central Greece. And while this would have been a great source of irritation to the Macedonian king. What would have been even more irritating was that his key regional ally, King Aribus of Epirus, had again been found lacking in terms of helping to keep his kingdom secure. But that could be dealt with at a later date. For now, the more pressing concern was focused on delivering a devastating and thorough backlash to Pluritus, making it resoundingly clear that this was by no means the ineffectual Macedonian kingdom of just over a decade ago. And by early 345 BCE, Philip began returning the favor on a far greater scale than anything that the Illyrians were able to muster, raiding voraciously into Pluritus's lands, quickly but also methodically, very likely by employing a similar strategy to that he had used when invading the Paeonian tribes in 358 BCE 
parceling off portions of his army to multiply the chaos and severity of the Macedonian incursions, which almost immediately began to pay off huge dividends. These Macedonian contingents devastating the countryside and capturing numerous towns and cities in their westwards push, extracting wagon trains of plunder filled to capacity that were sent back to Macedon. Unable to match the armies that Philip had in field, and unwilling to engage in pitched battles, it appears that Pluritus resorted to more of a guerrilla warfare-like strategy, hit-and-run tactics, desperately trying to discourage the Macedonian advance throwing everything he could against Philip's forces, but steadily losing ground through 345 and into the following year, in 344 BCE, until a stroke of fortune, in the form of a mounted Illyrian raiding party that happened to fall upon a smaller group of elite Macedonian companion cavalry that included Philip among their number. This encounter exploding into a fierce skirmish that although was ultimately won by the Macedonians, resulted in a high rate of casualties for the companions. According to the ancient Greek scholar Didymus Kalkentoros, a number of companions slain and 150 severely injured, including Philip himself, who had been struck with a fierce blow that smashed his collarbone, throwing him from his horse. Only saved in the chaotic melee by one of his bodyguards that had thrown himself onto the precariously wounded Macedonian king, dying in the process but shielding him from the spear thrust that would have certainly ended his life. And while this event in itself didn't end the invasion, it probably did help it to come to a conclusion, with Pluritus understanding that he was unlikely to be afforded another opportunity to cut off the head of the Macedonian juggernaut and aware that his army was simply incapable of defeating the Macedonians. Accordingly, Pluritus, around mid-344 BCE, raised the white flag of surrender, imploring Philip to come to terms, and despite the painful wound, found Philip quite amenable to peace negotiations, certainly helped by the fact that Pluritus's realms were greatly reduced in size, and the favourable terms of the peace agreement itself with yet more Illyrian land ceded to Philip, and the valuable silver, copper, and iron mines found therein, with Mastodon's western border now extended almost completely to the Adriatic. With Pluritus and the southern Illyrians thoroughly thrashed, no longer capable of posing a viable threat to Mastodon for the foreseeable future, this freed Philip to take his leave of the area ordering a series of forts constructed along the new western border of his expanding empire. With Philip travelling back to Pella to recover from his painful broken collarbone, a period lasting from the balance of 344 through 343 BCE, during which Philip did not set off on any new military campaigns, instead attending to the business of ruling and administering affairs in Mastodon and Thessaly which of course, as always, included the expansion of his military. Though not at all idle when it came to continuing to chip away at the strength of the Athenians, since Philip was abundantly aware that they were disgruntled, and felt quite maligned by the peace of Philocrates, that they had ratified on the assembly floor in Athens in 346. Owing to Philip's crafty ways, pressured into accepting dishonorable conditions, such as limits on who they could make alliances with 
and renouncing claims on the cities that Philip had ripped from their grasp. However, since Philip and the majority of his fearsome army had marched off north to busy themselves elsewhere, and weren't in the vicinity of central Greece, it wasn't long before Athenian sentiment began changing once again, suggesting that they should be taking on a more openly aggressive stance against Macedon. Largely driven by the stirring speeches of Demosthenes, that was gaining momentum and essentially indicating that a resumption of hostilities to be imminent. In part, due to their belief, and rightly so, that Philip couldn't be trusted to maintain his side of the bargain. And since the chatter in the Athenian assembly was public, Philip would have most certainly been aware of their changing mood, receiving a constant stream of reports as to what was being discussed also aware that no other nations were willing to jump into the fight alongside Athens, wary of triggering Philip's attention and Macedon's destructive capabilities. And I'm convinced by this point that Philip understood that a resumption of war was unavoidable. However, since Macedon was technically at peace with Athens, at least for now, Philip continued to take steps to reduce their strength but through covert operations to cover his tracks, careful to ensure that it was not he, at least visibly, that was impinging on the terms of the peace agreement, which would have handed the Athenians the evidence they needed to sound the alarm to other nations as to the threat that Mastodon posed to Greece and raise broader support to combat this. Accordingly, Philip used clever subterfuge to continue disrupting Athenian shipping and trade, while also stirring up trouble among Athenian allies, doing so through third parties that couldn't be directly traced back to Macedon. For example, by supporting piracy, similar to that of the privateers employed by the European powers during the Age of Discovery and the colonization of the Americas during the 17th and 18th centuries, paid piracy that was heavily targeted at Athenian seagoing trade and merchant traffic in the northeastern Aegean while also providing financial and military expertise to support anti-Athenian factions among the various islands dotting the Aegean, setting figurative fires in many locations at once to support a number of successful rebellions, thereby pulling additional allies to leave the Second Athenian League. Like Philip had done on the island of Avia, situated just off the coastline of Attica, as covered in the last episode where Philip had stoked a rebellion back in 348. And while the Athenians had managed to squash that uprising four years back, up popped another substantial rebellion at this time, which eventually resulted in a pro-Macedonian tyrant taking control of the majority of the island. Another notable uprising occurring in 344 BCE at the island of Tenedos, near the mouth of the Dardanelles Strait with the same fate soon befalling the island of Samothrace as well, just north of the Aegean entrance to the Dardanelles, as it would for other islands in the area, Philip focusing on acquisitions close to the strait. Why concentrate efforts there, you may be asking? Well, since the peace of Philocrates prevented Philip from outright attacking the Athenian settlements in the Gallipoli Peninsula, the peninsula that follows along the length of the Dardanelles Strait, and he was prevented from sparking rebellions there, because the Athenians had so strongly reinforced their military presence in case Philip decided to attack anyway, the slippery Macedonian monarch pivoted. 
temporarily adapting his strategy to spur, mostly through handsome bribes, these islands to change their legions to Mastodon over Athens. Because all these possessions together would throw quite a wrench into Athenian shipping. You see, ancient sea travel required that ships have a series of friendly ports along the route in which to dock on a frequent basis. Ideally, on a nightly basis, largely due to a number of reasons, including that these ancient ships were not designed to be able to handle the waves in the open sea, so they would typically travel along by hugging the coastlines. But even in doing this, these ships could always be sunk when the weather worsened, so it was important to have nearby port options that they could quickly get to in order to provide safe shelter should the weather conditions suddenly change. And lastly, navigation at night could be extremely dangerous, making it very easy to hit hidden shoals, reefs, and rocks. Understanding this, we can better see Philip's strategic foresight and vision in wanting to take control of the islands near the Aegean entrance to the Dardanelles. If he couldn't conquer the cities and lands that controlled the shipping in the strait, in the aim of closing off the Athenian grain supply coming out of its settlements around the Black Sea, at the very least, he could use the nearby islands in the northeastern Aegean, around the mouth of the strait, to greatly hamper the Athenian grain convoys by removing friendly port options, while also encouraging piracy in these areas as well. Philip, as always, constantly on the lookout for opportunities and covertly striking out in multiple places at once to weaken the Athenians, in turn, strengthening his position. While Philip was in Pella recovering from the nagging collarbone injury sustained in the Illyrian campaign, ruling over his lands and plotting the ruin of Athenian shipping through 344 to 343, another more personal endeavor he launched at this time was arranging for the education of his son Alexander, by none other than the famed and celebrated Greek philosopher Aristotle, who originated from the Chalcides eventually left for Athens to study under another behemoth of Greek philosophy, Plato, but was then lured by Philip to Mastodon to begin tutoring the 13-year-old Alexander in 343 BCE. Quick interesting side note here is that Alexander was not actually the eldest of Philip's sons, the eldest being named Eridaeus. However, since Eridaeus suffered from some type of mental illness or disability, he was kept in the background, viewed as unfit for rulership. Granted, Eridaeus too would later in 323 BCE eventually come to the throne following Alexander's death. However, this was mainly in a capacity as a figurehead, used as a pawn by a series of powerful Macedonian generals. In any event, back to our story here, it appears that from early on it was rather clear that Alexander was earmarked to be his father's successor including receiving rigorous both physical and educational training befitting that of a future king, with Philip sparing no expenses in regard to his son's upbringing. Also, frequently appearing in Philip's court to learn directly from his father, that is, at least when Philip was around, since Philip was often absent abroad on the many campaigns that we have since covered thus far, so I tend to doubt that they were extremely close in contrast to the much closer relationship that Alexander had with his mother, Olympias, who is well documented to have held a huge influence on her son. But 
What of Philip and Alexander's relationship? This father-son relationship is one to which historical accounts provide a wide array of configurations, some pointing to a fierce adversarial relationship. And while this certainly could have been a possibility, I'm not entirely convinced by this and tend to take more of a moderate perspective. Because Alexander was notable for being an exceedingly strong-willed child, competitive, argumentative, and sometimes outright defiant, self-assured beyond reproach. Characteristics that one might view as important to a future king, and it appears that Philip indulged Alexander's character, perhaps even encouraging these attributes. For example, one story that helps illustrate this involves a horse named Bucephalus, meaning oxhead, aptly named for the stubborn horse that would later become Alexander's preferred steed, carrying him through almost all of his future campaigns. According to Plutarch, when Alexander was around 13, a Thessalian horse dealer offered Bucephalus to Philip at an exorbitant price, being that this horse was a magnificent specimen. However, when brought before Philip, his handlers were unable to mount the ill-tempered beast, causing Philip to dismiss the dealer away. That is, until the young Alexander spoke up, arguing to his father that he was making a big mistake, stating that he could tame the horse, doing what the older and experienced handlers could not, with Philip in turn wagering his son that he would purchase Bucephalus on his behalf if he could tame the horse. Then watching the scene with pride, as Alexander confidently approached the unsettled horse, spoke soothingly to Bucephalus and led him in the direction of the sun, so that it could no longer see its own shadow which had been the source of its distress, before successfully mounting it and riding it around. Afterwards, followed by Philip taking hold of Alexander, hugging him and reportedly stating, My son, you must find a kingdom big enough for your ambitions, for Macedon is too small for you. In turn, Alexander also clearly admired his father and his many accomplishments, seeing him as a benchmark for greatness, again surmised through a story put forward by Plutarch, with the young Alexander saying to the other Macedonian aristocratic children that he trained with upon learning of one of Philip's many victories, my father anticipates everything and will leave us no great and brilliant deeds to achieve. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't squabbles and perhaps an underlying competitiveness between the stubborn and headstrong father and son pair, especially as Alexander grew older into adolescence, but certainly nothing that wouldn't necessarily be uncommon for young men and their fathers, compounded by the complexities of being in a royal family, and the added strain of Phil possessing so many other wives which would have been somewhat of a threat to Alexander's beloved mother Olympias, who was so influential in his upbringing. However, beyond any heated words that would have been exchanged between the two at times, it doesn't appear that Philip had ever really considered anyone other than Alexander to be his successor. And as we'll get to a little later, this is evidenced by putting his son in charge of things in Mastodon as regent while Philip was off on campaign. Although perhaps at times, sprinkling notions of doubt in Alexander's mind to act as a motivation to improve, not be complacent in his development, and prove himself as a worthy heir, knowing full well the strain that such a title would eventually place on him, 
and the need for such a person to be an unbridled force of nature and have an unassailable strength of character. By early 342 BCE, Philip was in a position of undeniable strength, and the time he had taken to administer his kingdom had been well spent. With Macedon more stable than ever, and perhaps most importantly, feared by other nations, with no one willing to entertain Athens' overtures who were desperately working to form a coalition against him. And by this point, the 40-year-old Macedonian king was personally feeling much stronger as well, having recovered from his broken collarbone, and began assembling his army for another campaign in order to continue building on this strong foundation, asserting dominance in the north amongst his Balkan neighbours, ensuring that business was fully settled there. Since he would have been acutely aware that the resumption of open hostilities was on the horizon. In that, while central Greece was relatively quiet for now, he knew better than anyone how quickly the situation could evolve, always anticipating and wanting to be prepared for the future. Accordingly, in 342, Philip and his army initially marched westwards into Epirus to conclude some unfinished business there in a bloodless coup deposing and exiling its ruler, King Aribus, who Philip had previously found to be an ineffectual and untrustworthy ally, replacing him with his brother-in-law, Olympias's brother, Alexander of Epirus, who was not only fully in Philip's camp and admired him greatly, but was a loyal and capable commander that could be counted on to defend Maston's western flank. Allowing Philip to focus his attention beyond Maston's eastern border, in what would end up as a lengthy three-year campaign in Thrace, facing both familiar and new foes. Familiar in the form of Cursobleptes, the Odrysian king of eastern Thrace, modern southeastern Bulgaria and northwestern Turkey, that we had last touched upon in episode 17, who when we had last left things off there in early 346 BCE, had been conquered and affirmed as a vassal subordinate to the kingdom of Macedon, a position that didn't sit too well with Cursobleptes, who kicked off a rebellion against Macedonian rule in late 343 or early 342, causing Philip to send an advanced force under Antipater, another of his primary generals while Philip was settling affairs in Epirus. And while we don't know exactly how many troops the Adrigian king had at his disposal, Apparently, it was a substantial enough of a military force to be taken quite seriously, with events soon getting significantly more complicated and contentious, because the Achaemenid Persian Empire soon became involved, with the reigning king of kings, Artaxerxes III, sending in troops to help Cursobleptes maintain independence. Alarmed with the growing power that Macedon represented, and desiring to maintain a friendly buffer state between the two mighty empires. When Philip arrived in the area in mid-342 BCE, joining his forces with that of Antipater, all told around 30,000 Macedonian soldiers, Philip led them to cut a vicious path deep into the heart of the Adrigian kingdom, conquering city after city, cleaving all the way through to the western and southwestern coastlines of the Black Sea. And although historical accounts, as in all of Philip's Thracian campaigns, are quite murky and rather convoluted. It appears that despite these losses, Cursobleptes continued offering up a stubborn resistance. 
but realizing that his forces couldn't stand against the steamrolling Macedonian army in pitched battles, began resorting to a defensive guerrilla campaign. As Adrian Goldsworthy suggests in his book, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors, by leveraging the mountains and thick forests of northern Thrace to neutralize the terrifying Macedonian army so skilled at pitched battles. In particular, the long and cumbersome Sarissa pikes of the Macedonian phalanxes, rendering these weapons and units as pretty much useless in this theater. Which was a solid strategy, and would have made for a more effective strategy had it not been Philip that he was facing. A brilliant military strategist that once again showed a great deal of tactical adaptability, relying on cavalry, light and ranged infantry units, including peltists, mercenary archers and slingers, and also using hunting dogs to sniff out Thracian warriors hiding in trees and prevent ambushes. With Philip also enlisting the aid of some of the tribes in northern Thrace, notably acquiring an alliance with the Getai that inhabited the lands near the lower Danube River in what today would be the borderlands between northern Bulgaria and southern Romania. An alliance sealed through political marriage, Philip's sixth wife, Meda, the daughter of the reigning king of the Getai, allowing Philip and his newfound allies to engage in heavy fighting but through smaller scale engagements to steadily dismantle the Adrigian resistance by late 341 BCE, ending with the rebellious Cursobleptes captured and executed, and Philip installing new Adrigian kings that would be more amendable to a subordinate role. Commemorating his victory over the Adrigians with Philip founding a new city bearing his name, Philippopolis, which is today called the city of Plovdiv in central Bulgaria. Another lesser-known fact along Philip's storyline is that, in addition to the Getai, Philip's ventures into northern Thrace also brought him into contact with King Aetius of the Scythians, the ancient nomadic people, predecessors of the Mongols that ruled the Eurasian steppe from approximately the 7th century BCE until the 3rd century BCE, through their devastating warriors, highly mobile horse archers, that could rain a deadly hail of arrows upon their adversaries in mere minutes. King Aetius was a powerful Scythian ruler, who had united a number of Scythian tribes to carve out a kingdom for himself in what is known as the Pontic Steppe, north of the Danube River, stretching from the northern shore of the Black Sea to the northern lands around the Caspian Sea, with his capital assumed to be near the modern town of Kamianka Dniprovoska. Ukraine. Although the borders of each of these large and aggressive kingdoms were now bumping up against one another, it appears that Philip and Aetius struck a friendly diplomatic tone early on, with discussion of an alliance and cementing this through a future marriage, Aetius offering up marriage to a Scythian princess for Philip. You see, at the time, Aetius was involved in a conflict with another tribal kingdom from northern Thrace called the Histrians, whose geography, just to the south of the Danube where it meets the Black Sea, modern southeastern Romania, laden with tributaries of the Danube River, made it less than ideal for horse archer raids and incursions. And recognizing that they could help each other for what lay ahead and for what each monarch was next facing, although the details are rather murky, 
it appears that an early accord was struck, with Philip promising to later help Aetius by invading the Histrians from the south, in exchange for supplies and possibly even military aid to help support Philip's next monumental undertaking. Intending to launch sieges on the cities of Perinthus and Byzantium, with Philip's goal now being to bypass the Dardanelles altogether, since it was so strongly reinforced by the Athenians anyway, achieving the chokehold on the flow of Athenian grain by taking control of the Bosporus instead. Hold up, you might be thinking. Perinthus and Byzantium? Aren't these the same cities that Philip had previously protected from the now-deceased Odrysian king Cursobleptes? And yes, you would be correct there. However, given that Cursobleptes was gone and the Odrysian threat diminished, the leaders of those two cities began fearing Macedonian domination instead, since Philip now controlled almost all of Thrace, except for the Gallipoli Peninsula and the lands extending almost entirely to the Bosporus. And in truth, they were probably quite justified in believing so, given Philip's track record of overtaking allies. Accordingly, tensions quickly flared up, with Perinthus and Byzantium loudly taking on an anti-Macedonian posture, more confident in exhibiting this as a result of one of its newest allies, the Athenians, who were promising to do whatever it took to help them remain independent with promises of aid also coming out of the Achaemenid Persian satrapies in Anatolia. Athens in particular having identified this as the key moment they had been waiting for, their big opportunity to resume hostilities in a way that fit with their overarching objective and enlist allies to their cause. Since Philip would clearly appear as the instigator in this case, the conquering tyrant of independent Greek cities. With Philip playing along and granting their wish, leading his army of 30,000 troops towards Perinthus to launch a fierce siege of the city in the spring of 340 BCE. Rams, torsion catapults, rolling siege towers, and troops with ladders initially making a great deal of progress in weakening its defenses, causing the Athenians to immediately jump to Perinthus's rescue, renouncing the peace of Philocrates and declaring war upon Macedon asserting themselves as the champions and protectors of Greek liberty. Now, this is a pivotal point in the storyline, because in undertaking such a dangerous path, Philip would have had awareness that not only was Perinthus going to be an exceedingly tough nut to crack, with the Athenians, Achaemenids, and also Byzantium throwing resources and military units into the mix to keep it out of Philip's grasp, but also that this would indirectly bring him into conflict against other Greek states, most importantly against Thebes, being that Thebes and Byzantium had previously established an alliance, ironically against Athens, back when Thebes had held their brief hegemony. And that this action would add to the anti-Macedonian sentiment that was building among the nations of Greece, further evidence to Philip's domineering ways that the Athenians were constantly ringing alarms about. But Philip decided to do it anyway, viewing this as a gamble worth taking, knowing that he could galvanize Macedonian dominance right then and there, controlling the passage to the Black Sea and therefore being the hand that determined if Athens was fed or not, which in effect would allow him to become the puppet master without the need to fight an actual battle against the Athenians, 
But to do this, he would have to take the city. And beyond the aid being ushered in by Parenthesis' allies, what made this siege even more difficult was that, like the siege of Methone back in 355-354, the port side of Perinthus remained open, with a large Athenian naval fleet concentrating its presence there to ensure that this waterborne lifeline remained open. Despite this, as mentioned a little earlier, the Macedonian siege arsenal initially punched massive holes into Perinthus' fortifications, breaching its outer walls. However, Perinthus and its allied forces figured out a brilliant counter to this, leveraging and enhancing the destruction of the outer fortifications, using the rubble to build improvised lines and obstacles, so as to not allow the Macedonian siege weapons to move deeper into the city. Daring Philip, laying down a challenge, that the only way he would be able to take the city was through costly hand-to-hand -hand combat, a challenge that the Macedonian king took on. However, as the next weeks dragged on, with the siege slowing to a crawl, making little progress and resulting in high casualties for both the attackers and defenders alike, since the defenders were consistently being reinforced, there was a clear danger that forcing this conquest could result in Philip irreparably breaking his army. A situation made worse by low food provisions to keep his army fed and up to fighting strength, since the Scythian king Aetius had failed to deliver on his promise of providing support of any kind, stating that he barely had enough to feed his people as it was amidst his ongoing conflict with the Histrians. Despite this, and the idea that Perinthus was slipping through his fingers, Philip was not yet finished in his attempt to take control of the Bosporus, casting the dice through another audacious gamble, keeping Perinthus busy, but then peeling off approximately half of his army, 15,000 Macedonian troops that were marched off to Byzantium in the summer of 340 BCE to attempt assailing that city as well, wagering that all the efforts to keep Perinthus defended left an opportunity open certainly a surprising move to all the opposing nations involved, since Byzantium was indeed left more weakly defended. This opportunistic endeavor allowing Philip to stumble upon and seize a huge Athenian grain convoy of 180 vessels moored at Byzantium's port, thereby getting the food he needed to keep his army fed while deconstructing the ships, using the salvaged lumber to assemble siege weapons that were put to use against Byzantium's robust walls, which, like the Siege of Perinthus, initially saw some successes. However, the Athenians to their credit were also able to effectively react, reinforcing and reasserting their control of the sea and port around Byzantium, thereby allowing military aid to flow into the city as well from the Achaemenid Persians and from other new Greek allies that decided to jump into the fray, including from Chios, Kos, and Rhodes. And by the late summer, after several attempts to storm each city concurrently ended in failure, Philip came to realize that his gambles had been lost, and was forced to call off both sieges. Was this a definitive mistake made by Philip? Absolutely, it's hard to argue otherwise. Granted, we of course have the benefit of hindsight to help us understand why and how things transpired as they did. Now, had the sieges been successful, especially in the taking of Byzantium, there is little doubt that the ramifications of this would have been significant. 
ultimately solidifying the obedience of the Athenians. But since the events ended with Mastodon's retreat, these failures did much to spark a renewed optimism among Athens and its allies, showing that the warmongering Philip was not invincible, and that concentrated efforts could indeed stop the Macedonian advance, also handing the Athenians an invaluable propaganda victory, arming them and others with the belief that Mastodon's time might be up thereby allowing the Athenians to form the first pieces of their grand coalition against Macedon. But still not yet of a strength to face Macedon in a pitched battle, since Thebes, whose formidable hoplites led by the sacred band would be the cornerstone to combat whatever Macedon could put in the field, though certainly alarmed and irritated by Philip's actions, was not yet willing to commit to war and throw their support behind Athens. Despite the failed sieges and the gathering storm in the south, Philip didn't immediately head from Macedon into Greece, in part because he was trying to use diplomatic means to try and smooth things over with Thebes, and surprisingly instead led his army further north into Thrace in the autumn of 340 BCE, being that he still intended to help King Aetius of the Scythians in their struggle against the Histrians even though Aetius had failed to deliver on his promise of providing supplies to Philip during his sieges. Why? Unfortunately, the rationale is not clearly understood. However, it could be that Philip was looking to fulfill this obligation so that he could gain the hand of the Scythian princess that Aetius had offered up, along with the benefits that such a political marriage could yield. Primarily, a powerful ally northeast of Macedon, that would come in extremely useful for any future Persian campaigns. Now, there wasn't much danger of Mastodon being invaded, and even if it had been, the kingdom was in the hands of his 16-year-old son Alexander, who, as mentioned earlier, was indeed showing early signs of being a worthy heir. With Alexander around this time forced to lead and fight his first military action, soundly defeating a disruptive Paeonian tribe that was trying to use Philip's absence as an opportunity to spur a wider rebellion in Paeonia, ending with Alexander in the spirit of his father, founding a city there bearing his name to mark his first victory, the city of Alexandropolis. In the autumn of 340 BCE, Philip marched his army into the area around the northern shore of the Black Sea where Aetius was situated, sending a quicker-moving forward contingent of Macedonian cavalry to link up with Aetius first, who interestingly dismissed the Macedonians with a sneer, the real reason behind this being that the king of the Histrians had recently died, thus ending the collective threat to the western Scythian domains, with Aetius refusing to acknowledge the agreement that he had previously made with Philip, then adding insult to injury, stating that the Scythians were far superior warriors anyways, warfare coursing through their veins. So how could he have ever required Macedonian aid in the first place? A notion emphasized in communications Aetius sent to Philip, who was still moving with the bulk of his army northwards through Thrace, with Aetius reportedly stating, You reign over the Macedonians, men that have learned fighting, and I over the Scythians, which can fight with hunger and thirst and despite Philip demanding to be compensated for all the trouble he had gone to, Aetius again refused to acknowledge their supposed agreement or bother paying anything out at all. 
and for the next couple of months, all was quiet. No further communication shared between these powerful monarchs. And in truth, had Philip struck then, the devastating Scythian mounted archers would have very likely wreaked havoc on the Macedonian army on the Pontic steppe lands. But Philip purposely held back, setting up his headquarters in the northern lands of what had been the Adrigian kingdom, gaining intelligence on this new type of adversary, learning that these nomadic Scythians were certainly a devastating force, but with one glaring hole that could be exploited. In that, they would largely demobilize over the winter, typically only actively warring from the spring through to the latter part of autumn before the weather took a turn for the worst. And as winter progressed, when the availability of grazing lands became increasingly sparse, their horses would also be at their weakest. Which is exactly when Philip struck, when confident that they had settled down to ride out the winter, biting deep into Aetius's kingdom, surprising them during the winter of 340 to 339 BCE. Philip heavily relying on his more mobile troops, cavalry and light infantry, conducting lightning assaults like he had used when he had leveled the Paeonian tribes early on in his career and that had been more recently successful against the Illyrians and Odrysians. In fact, so fierce and so thorough were the Macedonian assaults that by the time Aetius came to learn that Philip had attacked, while he did attempt to salvage the situation and mobilize his horsemen, he was unable to offer up a suitable response. One of the final encounters between the two armies occurring in 339 BC on the plains of Dobruja, a region that today straddles the Romanian and Bulgarian border. This poorly documented clash reportedly ending with Aetius killed in action and his army thoroughly routed. And the eastern portion of Philip's empire now reaching as far north as the Danube River in Thrace. This campaign also resulting in Philip extracting massive amounts of plunder at the expense of the Scythians. Livestock, 20,000 horses, and captives to be sold as slaves. However, in early 339, as the Macedonians were making their way back to Pella in triumph, a central northern Thracian tribe called the Tribali, demanded a share of the plunder in payment for Philip traveling through their lands, a demand which Philip refused, making for a tense situation that in short order quickly inflamed, exploding into chaotic hostilities. The Tribali launching a surprise attack and inflicting an unexpected defeat on the unprepared Macedonians, an altercation that also resulted in Philip being seriously wounded by a spear that had penetrated his right thigh with such force apparently that his horse was killed right from under him. Another instance bringing him precariously close to death. That, thanks to his competent royal physician and amazingly hardy constitution, he would nonetheless later recover from while back in Pella, but that left him permanently lame. And while the Tribali had indeed managed to secure a large proportion of the plunder, it appears that while Philip was recovering in Pella, he subsequently commissioned his senior officers to wage a campaign of retribution against the Tribali, who were then ruthlessly subdued, yet more lands and people brought under Macedonian control. Though, on the other hand, there was no avoiding one of the less tangible takeaways of the initial disaster against the Tribali, in that, when news of this spread, when coupled alongside the two recent failed sieges of Perinthus and Byzantium, and Philip left 
physically weakened by the dire leg injury. All of this made the Macedonian king appear significantly weaker. The Athenians pressing on the notion, emphasizing that Philip's time and line of successes were overly ripe, which was successful in helping them to gain more allies in their quest to end Mastodon's intended rise to supremacy in Greece. In part, due to what happened next in the autumn of 339 BCE, with Philip only partially recovered from his leg injury, now on the move once again, bearing down on central Greece with a quicker moving forward force, accompanied by his son Alexander, and the rest of the Macedonian army following behind, using the cover of the perfect smokescreen to justify their impending arrival. Responding to what would be called the Fourth Sacred War, triggered by the citizens from the small city of Amphissa, just to the west of ancient Phocis, and who, like their neighbor before them, had been recently caught cultivating land sacred to Apollo near Delphi. The Macedonian-dominated Amphictyonic League quickly convening, and no surprises here, electing Philip as the defender of the gods to be the one charged with serving up atonement to Amphissa for its sacrilegious actions. Their march southwards, however, setting off alarm bells amongst the Athenians, who sent off envoys in a fury of activity in all directions to Greek nations far and wide, imploring them to rise and embark on a veritable crusade against Macedon, leaning heavily on fear. The fear that, as evidenced by his domineering ways, that a barbarian was approaching who was looking to conquer Greece. Although not officially part of the alliance just yet, it was the Thebans who took the first action as Philip approached central Greece, since they were wary of the tricky Macedonian king and certainly didn't want him meandering through their lands with his army in tow. However, being that the Thebans couldn't occupy Thermopylae, since this was still under the hold of a Macedonian garrison established as of 346, seven years prior to that point, they instead took up a defensive position along the main route into central Greece, in a town to the east of Thermopylae not as well suited as that hollowed pass from a defensive standpoint, but one that still provided the Thebans with advantageous grounds to withstand any assailants. Could Philip had launched an assault there anyway, winning against the forward contingent of Theban hoplites? Yes, maybe, but at what cost? Certainly triggering the Thebans to side with the Athenians. Plus, Maybe there was another way to overcome this obstacle that blocked his path into central Greece. Do you recall from the last episode, when Philip ended the Third Sacred War, imposing a sentence on the defeated Phokians that was considerably less severe than anything they would have expected from any others in the Amphictyonic League, who essentially wanted the Phokians eviscerated? Well, this was where Philip's previous lenient treatment of Phokus bore yet more fruit in the form of an alternative path into central Greece, a much smaller and rough-hewn path that wouldn't have been feasible to travel through unless aided by the Phokians. Along the western side of Mount Kalidromo, southwest of Thermopylae that descended directly into Phocis, and that would have typically been easily defendable by much smaller numbers, and potentially ruinous to Philip if blocked by hostile forces. However, in late 339, Philip was able to slip through this pass into central Greece, completely unhindered, 
reaching and setting up his base of operations in the Phocian city of Iletia, where he began building fortifications while waiting for the rest of his army to gather there, also rewarding the Phocians for their assistance by freeing them from the penalties that had been previously imposed on them, including the restoration of their lands back to them in full, thereby converting the Phocians from the status of a former enemy into a grateful ally, who were now also providing Philip with a secure base in central Greece to operate from. Where then Philip took a pause, not advancing any further into Boeotia, the lands controlled by Thebes, or Attica, the lands controlled by Athens, largely because he was still trying to use diplomatic means to take Thebes out of the fight, and even join his cause, or at the very least, request that they remain neutral and allow the Macedonians to travel unhindered through Boeotia, through to Attica, and ultimately Athens. Knowing that, without Theban participation and the presence of their formidable troops, the Athenian-led coalition was surely doomed, both quality and numerically wise. You see, at that point in time, the mastery of the Macedonian army was by no means a foregone conclusion. And if domination could be achieved by negotiation, all the better in Philip's estimation. Philip was undoubtedly wary and cognizant of the prowess of Greek troops. Realizing, from first-hand experience, that battles against Greek armies were indeed risky affairs. And so far, he had only fought two such pitched battles in 353 and 352 against the Phocians, with a 50% success rate. Plus, these encounters were against mercenary hoplites, not a motivated collection of citizen soldiers fighting to dislodge a foreign barbarian invader. At the same time to receiving Macedonian envoys, the Thebans were also being courted aggressively by the Athenians, who were sending delegations that included the prominent Athenian politician and orator, Demosthenes, imploring Thebes to put aside the long-standing disputes between their two nations, because they were now facing a much greater threat to their very way of life, and the only way to preserve this and the liberation of Greece against a barbarian invader was by banding together. And as compelling as this argument was, it appears that the Thebans were taking their time to decide which side to throw their support behind. And what seems most likely is that they were playing off both sides against one another, seeing which alliance would serve them best. In part, because they felt that their warriors and participation would play a fundamental role in determining the side that won. Whatever the true rationale, what we do know is that there was a lot of negotiations happening behind the scenes. This lull in activity allowing the entirety of the Macedonian army to eventually gather at Iletia. All told, 32,000 Macedonian troops. This happening while Athens and the allies it had managed to convince were too beginning to gather in northern Attica, each side keeping careful tabs on one another but not moving any closer or engaging in any clashes or skirmishes, since each was also waiting to see which side of the fence that Thebes would land on. Philip instead used this time to fulfill his obligation to the Amphictyonic League, peeling off a large portion of his army stationed at Iletia, probably in the realm of 15,000 troops, and led them 60 kilometers west through the Phocian lands to deal with the city of Amphissa 
in early 338 BCE. However, while en route to Amphissa, the Athenians had opportunistically procured an army of 10,000 mercenaries and slipped them into Philip's path. That, although significant, was reportedly anticipated by Macedonian scouts or warned of by his Phokian allies, allowing Philip to concoct a daring nighttime attack that caught the mercenary force completely unaware, devastating and routing them with few Macedonian losses. Before venturing into Amphissa to brutally conquer the defiant city, exacting a harsh penalty for their earlier improprieties. Philip's harsh treatment of Amphissa, dominating fellow Greeks, being one of the last straws convincing the Thebans to officially put their support and, in fact, lead the allied Greek army that Athens had catalyzed. This change in Theban policy, greatly aided by the generous terms that the Athenians had promised them including a massive financial backing of their war effort, with Athens promising to foot almost all their associated costs, along with promises of future Athenian support to broaden Theban power in central Greece that may have included all the focus being made subordinate to Thebes, thus a vital source of reasserting its future strength. The end result of all of this being a massive allied Greek army headed by Thebes and Athens that began amassing at a village called Chaeronea, in Boeotia, Greece, the town that would give this historical turning point and defining battle its name, the Battle of Chaeronea. The Allied Greeks fielding an impressively large force of 35,000 troops, mostly infantry with a few hundred cavalry, made up of units from city-states and regions across western, central, and southern Greece. The centerpiece and strongest military presence, however, coming from Thebes, with the Spartans declining to participate, declaring themselves as neutral. With the reported breakdown as follows, the Athenians and Thebans accounting for just over 60% of the army, approximately 12,000 Theban troops, including the elite 300 of the Sacred Band, 10,000 Athenians, and the remaining 13,000 supplied by the other allies. A notable feature of this allied army, one especially outside the norm for the Athenian forces at this time, was that it largely consisted of citizen soldiers, with even prominent politicians such as Demosthenes arrayed in battle gear taking part, motivated by patriotic duty. This while the Macedonians under Philip reconvened at Eletia, just about 20 kilometers due north of Chaeronea. As mentioned earlier, numbering 32,000, 30,000 infantry, although we don't know the exact breakdown of how many phalanxes and light infantry. And lastly, 2,000 Macedonian companion and Thessalian cavalry. And being that the Thebans had finally made their decision, throwing their weight behind the Greek coalition, although he did try sending them additional envoys, Philip soon came to realize that there would be no diplomatic solutions to this conflict. Battle now an imminent outcome. As a quick side note, historical accounts provide many conflicting descriptions as to what unfolded during the encounter, so I'll do my best to lay out a sequence that makes sense based on the research I've conducted. In the oppressive heat of August 338 BCE, Philip gave the command to march south bringing his army straight down the main road from Eletheia to Chaeronea, where the allied Greek army was awaiting, 
between the foothills of Mount Thurion and the Cephisos River, intent on using these two physical barriers as a means of preventing any Macedonian flanking maneuvers. The allied Greeks, from their point of view, arrayed as follows. The Athenians on the left of the field, nearest to Mount Thurion, and the Thebans on the right with the sacred band and allied cavalry, closest to the Cephisos River, with the remaining allied heavy infantry filling out the center. While across on the Macedonian side of the field, Philip commanded its right wing, opposite the Athenians, the likely setup including the elite shield bearers on the extreme right, supported by light infantry units that would be more adaptable and able to advance despite being on the most uneven grounds of the battlefield along the base of Mount Thurion. With Philip mounted while commanding the Macedonian right, unlikely to have been standing along his infantry due to his recent leg injury that left him with a pronounced limp. To the left of these units and throughout the center of the Macedonian line stood the long lines of the Pezetheroi, or foot companions, the Macedonian phalanxes with their intimidatingly long sarissa pikes facing outwards, now arrayed in larger blocks of 16 by 16 soldiers, larger than the 10 by 10 configurations that had been utilized in the earlier phalanx formations. And finally, with the 18-year-old Alexander on the left wing of the Macedonian line, commanding the Companion and Thessalian cavalry, supported by light infantry, standing opposite to where the sacred band of Thebes and the Greek allied cavalry had formed up, neither side taking any immediate actions, waiting some hours in the sweltering summer conditions, with Philip finally commencing the battle, undertaking a staggered formation, ordering the Macedonian right and center-right units to move forward, triggering the Athenian hoplites to begin moving forward as well to give battle, with Philip in response, then curiously ordering his troops back, baiting the Athenians to give chase through the tremendous heat, advancing further still on a slightly uphill slope until the Macedonians finally stopped their backwards march, turning to engage the Athenians, both groups soon locked into a deadly embrace of spear points and shields. All of this being a purposeful tactic employed by Philip, looking to sap away at the energy of the Athenian forces that, as mentioned earlier, were largely citizen soldiers. A strategic calculation, wagering that, although these citizen soldiers were clearly inspired and driven by a sense of patriotic duty to preserve Greek liberty, a definitive weakness that came along with this that Philip was looking to exploit was that, as citizen soldiers, they were in fact part-time troops, and the invigorated inspiration that fueled them would soon dissolve under the strenuous physical demands of a battle in the overwhelming heat. And while this was unfolding on the Macedonian right, the young Alexander then exploded into action on the left wing charging about two-thirds of the Macedonian cavalry and all of his light infantry into the opposing Thebans, quickly smashing to pieces the woefully inferior allied cavalry that had surged forward, and then concentrating a great deal of their efforts on keeping busy and breaking the best unit of the allied Greek forces, the Sacred Band, with the Macedonian center phalanxes also moving forward to engage the allied center. 
huge plumes of dust and dirt being stirred up in the air, disrupting vision as to what was happening across the field. That must have added to the battle chaos. Spears splintering into shields, armor, and bodies, horses neighing wildly amongst cries of both pain and encouragement from officers. This chaos and all the preceding actions essentially creating two different separate battles that were occurring on the same field, leaving a huge gap in the center of the battlefield. With Alexander and his forces attacking the Thebans close to where they had initially lined up at the onset of the battle, alongside the two center infantries locked in battle close to where the allied Greeks had also initially lined up. While across the battlefield, the Athenians had surged forward a considerable distance away from their allies, before getting locked into place by the units that Philip was commanding. And it appears that, as Philip had predicted, the Athenian lines became increasingly disorganized before smashing up against the hardened, disciplined, and drilled-to-perfection wall that the Macedonians made up. Where the Athenians, although fighting bravely against the unmovable Macedonian wall, began to buckle, seeing the far worst of the engagement in terms of losses before collapsing entirely. As the remaining one-third of the Macedonian cavalry, having passed through the huge gap across the center of the field, then charged into the Athenian units from behind, causing the Athenian wing to fall into utter disarray, before being fully routed, collapsing into a chaotic retreat, their cause hopelessly lost. And as the remnants of the Athenian units poured south in a wild retreat, like a cascading row of dominoes, this resulted in the Greek allied center quickly losing heart, soon following their Athenian counterparts in fleeing the battlefield, leaving only the Thebans, continuing to bravely fight on. However, as they became assailed by the Macedonian units that had been freed up by the flight of the allied center, this is where they too experienced terrible casualties, only saved from total devastation by the 300 men of the Sacred Band, who in a famous last stand of their own, akin to the Spartans at Thermopylae, refused to retreat, this battle only ending for them when the last of the 300 were slain. In fact, the site where today still stands a monument known as the Lion of Chaeronea, constructed by the Thebans in the honor of their fallen sacred band. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, this sight, in particular, causing Philip to weep with sorrow, considering how much he admired and respected these elite warriors, and how influential they had been to Philip in terms of his military education and philosophy that had developed during his time while held as a hostage in Thebes in his youth a time when Mastodon itself was precariously close to utter ruin. In contrast to this point, not only recognized as a superpower thanks to Philip's guidance, but with this dazzling victory and Philip's crowning achievement, now situating Mastodon as the unequivocal master of Greece. Actualized through this hard-fought but certainly lopsided affair, evidenced by the casualties, with only 140 Macedonians falling in the engagement, whereas 2,000 allied Greek soldiers were left slain on the battlefield, the Athenians and Thebans accounting for the bulk of the losses, with 4,000, again mostly Athenians and Thebans surrendering and captured by Philip's forces. 
In the wake of the Battle of Chaeronea, Philip immediately led his army to Thebes, which surrendered to him unconditionally, before venturing further south into Greece. And while the Athenians that had survived the battle, including Demosthenes, had rushed back to Athens to hastily prepare for a siege of the city, to their surprise, what they found was Philip taking more of a conciliatory posture, also allowing the Athenian prisoners to return to their city. And while the Second Athenian League was indeed dismantled, also forcing the Athenians to give up their possessions in the Gallipoli Peninsula to Philip, giving him a great deal of leverage over Athens, since he could now turn off the grain tap at will if he so desired, Philip did not launch a siege on Athens, and apparently treated his defeated adversaries with courtesy and a great deal of respect, though in more of a no-nonsense fashion, making it abundantly clear that peace was on the agenda, provided that they acknowledged themselves as subordinate to Macedon. And in the following months, Philip led his army through central and southern Greece, extending this similar offer that was accepted by all Greek nations. Agreements that were later galvanized in the formation of something called the League of Corinth, established in the latter half of 337 BCE, where almost all nations signed on, acknowledging Macedon as the unquestioned master of Greece, with one glaring omission, this being Sparta that refused to participate, creating a tense exchange of communications that was just too good to leave out with Philip initially asking Sparta whether he should enter their city as friend or foe, the famous laconic reply being simply, neither, with Philip then threatening, you are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. The Spartans' reply was just as short as before, if. And while Philip did proceed to ravage the lands of Lacedaemonia in the southern Peloponnese, dislodging it from Spartan control, thus weakening the city-state further, he stopped short of attacking Sparta itself. Why? Well, predominantly for the following reasons. At this point, the Spartans were largely a shell of their former selves in power, so whether they were in or out of the League of Corinth was of minor consequence. Furthermore, in the event that Philip launched an attack on their city, resulting in getting bogged down there or in the off chance of experiencing any military setbacks, this might have undone a lot of the work he had just achieved, in terms of the veneer of no Greek forces possessing the ability to stop Macedonian dominance. In part, Philip's destruction of the lands around Sparta also served as an example to the rest of Greece of what fate could befall them if they didn't fall into line. But mostly, he stopped short of destroying them outright, because he was careful to avoid acting like a ruthless tyrant, giving the nations of Greece the illusion of their participation in the League of Corinth being an option. In that, Philip required Greek cooperation for the next summit he intended to ascend, the invasion of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Since, through the benefit of hindsight, having vision as to Philip's story from beginning to end, were able to mark the Battle of Chaeronea as his crowning achievement. While that is certainly accurate from our perspective, I believe that in Philip's mind, the mastery of Greece was, 
or perhaps became a stepping stone to his undying appetite for more expansion in power, continuing to drive Mastodon to unimagined heights. And Philip wanted willing partners for this next monumental undertaking, granting use of their valuable tools, including the use of the vast Athenian fleet and more Greek warriors to bolster his attack. And perhaps most importantly, wanting to leave Greece stable, so that while he was abroad, off in Persia, not having to put up with difficult Greek rebellions emerging at his back. And by the time he led the bulk of his army back to Macedon by late 337 BCE, it appears that he had sufficiently achieved the stability he was looking to establish. Without exception, all the members of the League of Corinth agreeing to unite and abide by the peace that Macedon had imposed, declaring war on the Achaemenid Persians, and committing military aid and resources to the future campaign. And, of course, voting Philip as Strategos, or Supreme Military Commander of the Invasion. En route back to Macedon, Philip stopped off at the Temple of Apollo in Delphi to consult with the oracle about his upcoming Persian invasion, reportedly receiving the following cryptic reply by the entranced Pythian priestess. Wreathed is the bull, all is done there is also the one who will smite him. A premonition that would eerily foretell future events, though not in a way that Philip anticipated. But at that moment, the meaning clear for the self-assured 45-year-old Macedonian king. Believing the wreathed bull, ready for sacrifice, to be the Achaemenid Empire, or the reigning king of kings, who at this time was Artaxerxes IV. The conquest inevitable, with Philip being the deliverance. And topping off the wild celebrations in Pella upon Philip's return in late 337 BCE was his seventh marriage to a woman from a prominent family of the nobility in Lower Macedon by the name of Cleopatra. And the infamous wine-soaked marriage celebration that followed afterwards, wherein Alexander insulted his inebriated father for falling during a spat between father and son, being that Alexander felt threatened by the talk of this marriage producing a Macedonian pure-blood heir, as suggested by the bride's father. And although Alexander proceeded to collect his mother Olympias and flee to Epirus, in a few short months he returned to his father's court, the whole event largely dismissed as the alcohol-infused spat that it was. By the dawning of 336 BCE, Philip was indeed riding high, with those in his court, Mastodon, and all of Greece, frankly, amazed by what he had accomplished so far, clearly believing that the domination of the Achaemenids could be made into a reality by this man, who, at 46 years old, though visibly the grizzled veteran of countless battles, sieges, and skirmishes, with numerous injuries, was still in remarkably good health. And in Philip's mind, far from finished with his campaigning, the expansion of Macedon, and the building of his legacy to unparalleled heights. In early 336, commanding his most trusted and capable general, Perminion, to spearhead the invasion of the Achaemenid Empire, who crossed the Hellespont into Anatolia with an army of 10,000 Macedonians at his back this initial thrust going exceedingly well, with many of the Greek cities along the western Anatolian coast immediately rebelling against their Achaemenid overlords 
and throwing in their allegiance with Macedon, with Philip planning to follow in late 336 or early 335, with an additional 30,000 troops and launch the invasion in earnest. That is, after he had taken the time to continue administering his newly expanded empire and ensure that it was securely in hand, while also presiding over the wedding of his daughter, Cleopatra, to his faithful subordinate at Mastodon's western border, Alexander of Epirus. The lavish celebration taking place in October 336 BCE at Aegae, the ancient capital of the kingdom of Macedon, including sumptuous feasting, games and competitions, and elaborate ceremonies intended to project Macedonian and thus Philip's power to all the domestic and foreign dignitaries present the pinnacle of which was a procession into the main theater of Aegae, best described by the words of Diodorus Siculus. Along with lavish display of every sort, Philip included in the procession statues of the twelve gods wrought with great artistry and adorned with a dazzling show of wealth to strike awe in the beholder, and along with these was conducted a thirteenth statue, suitable for a god, that of Philip himself so that the king exhibited himself enthroned among the twelve gods. With the Macedonian king awaiting the procession to end, before he entered the theatre to the roar of the crowd, a grand finale that was never to be. Because while waiting alone, having ordered his guards at a distance so he could make his grand entrance alone to soak up the adoration of the crowd, one of his seven bodyguards, a man by the name of Pausianus, took the opportunity to approach Philip and stab him in the ribs, instantly killing the Macedonian king. In the end, it being a supposedly friendly blade that caused Philip's demise, doing what countless other foes in battle and opposing nations beyond their best attempts were unable to do. The assassin attempting to flee on his horse, but prevented from a successful escape when his horse tripped allowing Philip's other bodyguards to catch up with Pausianus and avenge the death of their king. Serving retribution, yes, but also ending any chance of learning who had ordered Philip's assassination. Which begs the question, who in fact engineered his death? Well, the list of potential people is ponderously long considering how many enemies Philip had made in his climb and the rise of Macedon with many theories subsequently raised. Some of these being that Pausianus himself had been maligned by Philip, which is certainly not an unprecedented ending among previous Argeid kings. Others believing that his son Alexander had ordered this, impatiently wanting to take his father's throne and the glories that awaited in the eventual conquest of Persia. Or by Alexander's mother, Philip's fourth wife, Olympias, marking her as the scorned woman fed up with Philip's many other wives and liaisons, also wanting her son to ascend to the throne through which her stature would be raised. There was certainly no lack of politicians and leaders from many surrounding nations, and particularly those in Greece, that would have been motivated to end Philip and his recently imposed domination. And while there are probably many other potential candidates, Another that holds a great deal of potential is that this action was ordered and paid for by the Achaemenid king of kings, knowing that Philip had Persia in his line sight. 
unfortunately, we'll probably never know the real answer. And all we can definitively say is that this marked the end of Philip's spectacular 23-year reign. In the immediate aftermath, Alexander taking quick action, aided greatly by Antipater to assert his ascension to the throne. Proclaimed as king on the spot by the Macedonian nobles and the army at the age of 20. Before fulfilling his father's ambition, conquering the Achaemenid Persian Empire in a storied 13-year reign that has been so highly celebrated and meticulously reviewed, long inspiring warriors, rulers, historians, and frankly, people all over the world. A sentiment that is absolutely fitting, being that Alexander was indeed a military genius like his father, undefeated in battle and widely recognized as one of history's greatest and most successful military commanders, which allowed him to create one of the largest empires in history, stretching from Greece to Egypt, northwestern India, and Central Asia. But of course, also overshadowing that of Philip's achievements. Was Alexander a greater military commander than Philip? In my opinion, an almost impossible question to answer, because as much as we might try to imagine this, there is no way to know how Philip would have handled this undertaking as compared to his son. What I think could be argued with more conviction is that Philip may have been a more effective ruler and nation builder. Because when we think back to the bleak days facing the kingdom of Mastodon just as Philip rose to power, it's truly astounding what he was able to build. Inheriting a small, demoralized army of roughly 8,000 troops, a kingdom racked with terrible disunity and infighting, with an abysmal economy, threatened by enemies all around, and considered a barbarian kingdom hardly worth consideration beyond its minor utility as a pawn. With Philip introducing extensive military, tactical, and strategic innovations, weaving this in with diplomatic brilliance and sheer audacity to pull Macedon from the edge of the abyss to mastery over its Balkan neighbors and Greece. Whereas Alexander, through Philip, was handed one of the most dominant military forces of the time, better than anyone could have asked for, a standing army of around 40,000 highly trained and disciplined Macedonian soldiers that he could immediately put to devastating use. But herein lies the fundamental source of Philip's legacy, that his actions and achievements changed the course of history, marking the end of Greek dominance in antiquity and the beginning of the Macedonian era providing the very foundation and the tools for the rise of Mastodon to occur, and in many more ways than simply the biological, and that few could argue against, in that, had there been no Philip, there would have been no Alexander. Not that Philip didn't have a great deal of help from what was happening in the surrounding environment, and politically, particularly in Greece. A significant part of what made his reign so effective and ultimately Macedon so dominant, must be attributed to what was unfolding in Greece. Athens struggling and barely treading water to keep the Second Athenian League together, and the near constant warfare occupying the city-states and nations of Greece. Athens, Sparta, and Thebes fighting to establish their respective hegemonies, and other regional conflicts like the Third Sacred War, all of which culminated to exhaust themselves 
also creating a power vacuum that Philip was able to fill in a remarkably short period of time, initially under the radar of his adversaries, who reacted and united too late in the game to prevent this. As to Philip's personality and character, beyond being undeniably intelligent, innovative, devious and brave with a profound disregard for danger, he also had limitless ambition with an insatiable appetite for power. And while some historians have also labeled him as someone prone to excesses, even going as far to say that he was an alcoholic and a womanizer, which is certainly not out of the question, I tend to disregard the severity of these claims. Not trying to excuse them, but more so because if he did hold such vices, they didn't appear to impact how effectively he ruled his empire. And also because ancient Macedon was a hard-drinking society to begin with, polygamy also being regularly practiced by Macedonian monarchs. In any event, today, the great tumulus at Aegae near modern Virginia, Greece is said to be Philip's final resting spot. Tomb 2 to be specific, buried alongside a dragon's hoard of ornate treasures that I'll include images of on my website. And although it has been debated whether Philip was buried in Tomb 2, more recent investigations appear to lend credence to this notion, indicated by the remains, skull damage to the right eye and a misaligned tibia in keeping with Philip's recorded injuries sustained during the Siege of Methone in 354 and the battle against the Terbali in 339 BCE. With many statues and other monuments celebrating Philip found in the modern country of North Macedonia and also in Northern Greece, in what was the heart of the ancient kingdom of Macedon. Odes to the man that the ancient Greek writer Theopompus declared as the greatest man that Europe had ever given the man that, most literally, ushered in a new era in antiquity, with Macedonia taking the lead, ending Greek dominance, while also providing the foundation, completed by his son of course, to mark a new age within the historical global timeline. The end of the classical age upon Alexander's death in 323 BCE, and the beginning of the Hellenistic age. Indeed. Few leaders can boast that their reigns, as influential as they might have been, mark such fundamental era shifts as in the case of Philip II of Macedon. As bittersweet as it is to be done with Philip's story, I'm also extremely excited to be moving on to the next prolific warlord of history that I've received numerous requests to cover. A truly fascinating story that will take us into the early modern era, largely taking place in the first half of the 18th century. The story of Nader Shah, the Sword of Persia, one of the most powerful rulers in Persian and Iranian history, and like that of Genghis Khan and Amir Timur before him, the last of the great Asiatic military conquerors that owing to his own military innovations, achievements, and many dazzling victories has since been described as the second Alexander and the Napoleon of Persia. Nader Shah arising out of humble roots, an unlikely ruler that regularly punched above his weight, overcoming terrifyingly steep odds, using guile, cunning, and brute force to grasp power during a period of chaos in Iran in the early 1700s. 
before taking on a series of formidable foes including the Afghan Pashtuns, the Ottoman Empire, and the Imperial Russian Empire, winning numerous brilliant battlefield victories to reunite the Iranian realm and violently carve out an enormous empire in a short period of time, through epic campaigns in the Middle East, the Caucasus, Central and South Asia. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where, if you are so inclined, you can sponsor the show directly through Patreon or PayPal, with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. The music from audionautics.com.